Just a couple changes in today's scripture reading. We'll be reading from John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19 only. So once again, not the entirety of 1 through 19, but just 14 through 19. I have not given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Lisa. So I switched that up. I wanted to have us this morning just to focus on those, what is it, five verses. There's the context there. We'll be referring to that um, as we go forward in this message. But before we jump right in, again, my name is Eric, and if I haven't had the chance to meet you, welcome. I would love the chance to introduce myself to you if I haven't had the opportunity to do so. For the season of Lent... We are in a teaching series on John chapter 17, one chapter and at least seven weeks or seven messages on this one chapter. This week we were talking at the dinner table, one of my sons was remembering his time at a, it was a Christian school a number of years ago, and we were talking about how he found what he called a slice of the Bible. And a slice, what is a, what is a slice of the Bible? It's when a book falls apart or a Bible falls apart, right? And there's just like a little slice of the Bible left. And so he said there was a slice of the Bible in his classroom. And it just so happened that this slice of the Bible was the book of Revelation. So he just talked about how, well, that was the slice he had. So he just started reading it, the whole thing during class. It made me think, if you could only have one slice of the Bible. (laughs) Which slice would you choose? If you could give somebody a slice of the Bible that represented, hey, for some reason I only have a slice. This is the core. This is the essence. This is the heart of what the Bible is all about. What slice would you give somebody? Well, there, there may be a lot of responses to that, some good answers to that question. But after four weeks of studying This chapter, John chapter 17, I would have to put this as one of my top slices of the Bible. If you know uh, the name John Knox, he was the great Scottish uh, reformer. He brought the gospel to, uh, to Scotland. At his deathbed, when he was dying, he said, somebody read me John 17. He picked this chapter. I've never heard anybody say there's a part of the Bible that's too holy. It's too sacred for you to even talk about and preach on. And I shared before, people have said that about John 17. And as far as I know, I've never, uh, I've never heard of any other chapter of the Bible that's as many sermons have been preached on as this one. (laughs) One pastor preached 145 sermons on this. And after these three messages and now the fourth, I think I'm beginning to see why, why this chapter is so special so sacred. Here what we have is the prayer of Jesus Christ for his disciples. They were there. They were hearing him pray this. This is right before Jesus was taken away. He knew, he said, this, my hour has come. I know that my death is imminent. 
And not only did he pray for his disciples who were there hearing this prayer, we see a little bit later, not even printed here in this, uh, in the bulletin, but the next, the very next verse, verse 20, he says, I'm not praying just for those here, but I'm praying for all who would believe through their word. So any Christian, if you are a Christian, this prayer is Jesus's prayer for you. He knew it was his last prayer for them before he died. So there's no fluff. There's no extra stuff here. This is Jesus's deepest heart, his highest priorities for all who would believe in him. That's what we have in this prayer. And as you look at it, most of it's there in the bulletin. There's uh, six more verses after that. It's not very long. You've probably heard longer prayers that have been prayed. I know I've prayed a lot longer prayers than this, but it's very dense. It's so rich. And it's amazingly comprehensive. He starts from eternity past. In verse 5, he prays about the glory he had with the Father before the world existed. And the prayer ends with eternity future, that we would behold his glory and be with him where he is forever. And in between those two bookends of eternity past and eternity future, he covers everything about our life in this world. So for Lent, we are considering how, if this prayer is answered, John 17 is, if this prayer of Jesus is answered in my life, that we have everything we need to know God, to overcome and find hope in any suffering, in any trial, and to be filled up with a complete joy, an overflowing joy. The more that we understand what Jesus prays here, the more that we see. While this might not be the prayer that we would write out and say, Jesus, this is the prayer that I want. The more we understand what's here, we realize this is the prayer I need. This morning, our focus will be on a phrase found two times in this prayer. It's the phrase, not of the world. This is the part of the prayer where Jesus prays for his disciples' transformation. He prays for their growth. And in it, we get profound insight into what Christianity teaches about how people change. How do we become what God wants us to be? How do our lives transform? How do we find spiritual growth? And so this morning, I want to ask you some questions Do you have parts of your life that you long to be different? Do you have areas of your life that you are seeking change in? Do you feel stuck? Do you feel stagnant? Do you wonder if Christianity is just another self-help option? Are you wondering, can I really change? This part of Jesus' prayer is what you need. And we're going to focus in really just on three verses. There's one right there in the middle that we'll focus on at a later time. Verse 16, 17, and 19. In these verses, Jesus prays for three things that are the key to change, that are the power for growth. First, we'll go through these one at a time. Jesus prays, we could put this up on the slide that we would be clear about who and what we belong to. Jesus says this twice in this prayer. He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. 
Verse 14, if you look at that, he says, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. In verse 16, Jesus repeats the same phrase verbatim, word for word. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. So he said, this isn't a very long prayer, but here, word for word, verbatim, this phrase is repeated in Jesus' prayer. Why? Well, anytime something is repeated in Scripture, we know at least it's there for emphasis and importance. Jesus is concerned as his disciples are hearing him pray. He's making sure they don't miss this, how important this is, that they would be crystal clear for his disciples and for all those who would come to believe in him You are not of the world. But what does that mean, though? Not of the world. We've seen here the phrase, in the world. Jesus says, you're in the world, so I'm in the world. I live in the world. There's trouble and trials and suffering. We're not exempt from those. Jesus says, I'm I'm praying not that you take them out of the world. In the world, we're not out of the world. But then Jesus says, but we're not of the world. And so what does that even mean? It comes down to one little tiny Greek preposition, little one, ek. It's my initials, so I can remember it, E-K, ek. What does it mean? It means of. Jesus says, you're not of the world just as I am not of the world. Well, we think about Jesus, and in one sense, Jesus is not of this world, and this is all throughout the Gospel of John because he says, I existed before this world existed. I didn't come from this world. I came from outside of this world. But we think about that and realize that doesn't apply to us. We were born here. We live here. We're in the world. So that's probably not the meaning here that somehow our existence is outside of this world. I think the best way to understand this is how many translations understand it. If you look this up on a Bible, uh, Bible app or something, you'll see it all listed out. Some say you are not of the world, and some translate it, they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Jesus wants to be very clear about who and what we belong to. Why is that so important to Jesus that he would repeat this twice? Before he prays, sanctify them, verse 17, set them apart, make them different, change them. He bases his prayer for change and transformation and growth on something else, on something prior, and it's this, it's on belonging. And let's put this phrase up here because I want to make sure I'm being clear about what I think Jesus is communicating here, and it is this, it is what and who we belong to that most shapes and forms who we are. Why is this so important to Jesus? Because Belonging is that foundational and important. Think about that phrase for a moment. In our modern world, we think it's the opposite. And let me explain. We hear phrases all the time like, you do you, right? You do you, you do your thing. Follow your heart. Be who you are. Be true to yourself. In other words, those phrases are saying, I belong to myself, and from there, I choose what else and who else I belong to. 
We try to put identity before belonging. I decide who I am, and then I choose where and what I belong to. Identity is very important. It's very foundational. We're going to get to that in the next point. But here, Jesus is putting belonging before identity. That who we are comes out of what and who we belong to. That's a bit conceptual and theoretical. Let me see if I can give an example or illustration. I'm reading a great book. It's a fantastic book I'm reading during Lent. It's called You're Only Human by a theologian named Kelly Cappage. And he shares an illustration about this very thing. He talks about a colleague who teaches sociology. And this colleague, he has his class, and on the first day of class, they come in and he says, okay, let's do introductions. This will be great. There's only one rule I have for these introductions, and that is this. You cannot refer to any groups that you belong to when you introduce yourself. So who wants to go first? And a student stands up and says, okay, uh, hello, Uh, my name is, wait, sorry, your name, that was given to you, you belong to your family. Your last name, you know, that belongs to a whole group of people who share that last name. You can't do that. Okay, I'm a freshman? No, sorry, because, you know, you're part of a freshman group. That's not who you are. That's the group you're a part of. Okay. I was born in... No, sorry, because a city... That's, that's an agreed-upon group of people who say this is where we live and we organize our life together. So what's left? <laughs> who are you? Who are you if you can't mention who or what you belong to? And so Capitch. Uh, ends up saying, the students say stuff like, I like pizza. (laughs) That's all they can say. Like, how does that describe who who you are? It's a profound point. It's, it's It's a great illustration and a great exercise. The point is who we are, our identity, is shaped and formed by who and what we belong to. That's how important belonging is. We can see this everywhere. More illustrations. Just to drive this home, in my high school, uh, maybe those of you who are in high school and all of you who went can remember this. We had some kids who felt like, I'm going to be myself, be true to myself. I'm going to rebel against the status quo and what everybody's doing. But at my school, when, in, the, in the 90s, they all wore flannels and Doc, Doc Martens. <laughs> And they had chains coming out of their their jeans that were kind of ripped and all that. Some of you are smiling. Maybe you were that kid. I don't know. But they're saying, I want to be myself. This is my identity. But then they end up being just like everyone in the group. And I'm not just picking on those kids, whoever they were. We all do that. We all see that. We see this politically. People on the political right who say, you know what? I'm all about individual liberty. Individual identity and the liberty to do what I want to do. People on the political left who say, I'm all about individual choice. It's all about my identity and being free to do what I want to do. I know this is dangerous waters a little bit, but here's, here's what happens, and I think we can all see that. You end up, if you know one thing that somebody believes who says that, you know they believe this. Say about This is what they believe about COVID. This is their initial response to issues of justice. Why is it that you can can predict everything else that that person believes? 
Again, we're not picking on anybody in that, but what I'm saying is there's a belonging there. The people who say we're all about individual freedom and choice, they end up believing all the same things down the list. You can go down and you can predict it. Interesting. Our identity is formed by who and what we belong to. It is what and who we belong to that most shapes and forms who we are. And this is much greater than peer pressure, something like that. The Bible says this goes far beyond peer pressure. This is what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the world. The world, I've been defining this in different ways the last few weeks, are the systems of life that human beings build apart from and in opposition to God. That's what Jesus means by the world in the Gospel of John. We all, in our sin, have separated ourselves from God, and we have to build a life. We have to build a culture. We have to think. We have to act. We have to feel. How do we do that? John says that's the world. Human beings trying to do life apart from God. It includes shared ways of thinking, desiring, and acting. And so Jesus says here, a follower of Jesus no longer belongs to any way of thinking, desiring, or acting. In the world, a follower of Jesus belongs to Jesus and his kingdom. So their thinking, their desiring, and their acting will not fit any category or group in the world. Notice here, this is not a prayer request. This is Jesus just stating a fact. Not only is it a statement of fact, it is the basis for what Jesus goes on to pray for. Sanctification, he's basing it on this, belonging, that they are not of the world and the implications are very, very profound and important. If this is off, if our belonging is off, then the basis for change in our lives is missing. And the basis for our mission to be sent into the world is off too. If this is off, there's no change in our lives and we are of no use for God's mission in the world. It's very important. My Christian friends currently... We have to talk honestly about some serious issues we have had with this. And we're seeing the fruit of that now in many different ways. And so I say this just to examine my own heart and all of our hearts. That those who have professed faith in Jesus have been and have been very comfortable belonging to various political ideologies right and left. Christians have been and are very comfortable belonging to our nation. Christians seem to have been and are very comfortable belonging to a consumerist, success, celebrity-driven agenda and model of life. But Jesus offended all political leaders of his day and said, my kingdom is not of this world. He called out the nation he loved and was born in many different times. He intentionally avoided numbers, influence, and celebrity. And Jesus says here, just as I am not of the world, so you are not of the world. Those things we need to examine in our lives. If we belong to these things more than we belong to Jesus, we are of the world in Jesus' language. 
And the basis for our lives being changed is off. The basis for our mission is missing. And so we all need to step back and ask, what is most shaping, guiding my thinking, my desiring, and my acting? What is most shaping my thinking, my desiring, and acting? And the answer to that question will tell us what we belong to, what we are of. How do we know? Well, when I, that's an important question. How do we know? Can we diagnose that in ourselves? There's a whole nother sermon to fully answer that question. But I thought maybe one of the best ways for us to answer that question is to consider how that question was answered, how this prayer was answered by those who first heard it, the disciples who are there listening to this prayer. The historian, Larry Hurtado, and this has been summarized by Pastor Tim Keller in different places. He made this observation about these disciples who Jesus said, you're not of the world anymore. Now I'm sending you into the world. What did that look like for them? Well, it looked like this. There were five, five characteristics of these disciples in the communities that they founded. They were a multiracial community that was never, ever seen before in the ancient world. Never. That's one. They were a community that was able to value forgiveness of their enemies over honor. They were a community that showed justice and mercy for the poor and oppressed. They were a community that had a great commitment to the sanctity of life. They rescued unwanted infants that no one cared about or thought of. They were a community that had a strict sexual ethic that believed sex is reserved for one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. Nobody put all those things together in the ancient world. And as you hear those five things, we realize who's putting those things together even in our world. It's different. It doesn't belong. It doesn't fit in any category or group. It is a way of life ground, grounded and based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Question one, it's in the bulletin. It's at the very beginning in the reflection quotes of the Heidelberg Catechism that says this is the foundational question of what it means to be a Christian. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own. I belong, body and soul, life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus. What is your only comfort? I am not of this world. I don't belong to this world. I belong to Jesus. This is the starting point for change and for growth. It starts here that we become clear on who and what we belong to. That our lives are not our own, but we belong to God because we belong to Jesus Christ. The one who made us and the one who saved us. We belong to him. So all of our thinking all of our feeling, all of our acting comes out of that. That's point one. Jesus prays that we'd be clear on who and what we belong to. Secondly, Jesus prays that we would believe we are who God says we are. Verse 17, Jesus prays. He's actually, this is his request based on what he said in verse 15. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify is a very religious kind of word. What does it mean? What is Jesus praying for? That we would be sanctified. 
The word sanctify is from the same word group that we translate the word, where we get the word holy or holiness. In English, it's hard to see the connection, but it's all related. Sanctify, holy, it's all from the same group of words. And so he's praying, make them holy. This sounds like he's praying for us to be changed. This sounds like he's praying for our lives to be transformed. And he is, but not in the way that most of us think he is. Jesus isn't praying here. Change their behavior. Make them better people. Make them good people, more spiritual people. He's praying, change their identity so that their behavior and lives would change. Go to the next slide. Because it is who we believe we are that most determines how we behave. I don't think about that. And we say, wait, isn't that backwards? Isn't it backwards? You have to behave holy and live holy so that you can be called holy, right? That's just what makes sense. Live holy, be holy, behave holy, and then you get to be called holy. But this prayer shows us, Jesus says, it's the exact opposite. Before you can become holy, you have to be holy. You have to believe this is who you are. Look at verse 19. We're going to unpack this in a moment, but Jesus says, I am sanctifying myself. What that can't mean is Jesus saying, I'm making myself more morally pure, more holy, a better person, a good person. Jesus is already perfect. He is already the eternal son of God. So he's not saying, make me better. He's saying, set, he's saying I'm setting myself apart. I'm consecrating myself. I'm devoting myself. And that's what we need to know about the word holy or sanctify. First, it means to set apart or devote. In the Old Testament, objects like an altar, a basin for washing, just utensils, bread, food, places, clothing are all called holy. These things can't be moral. You can't have a bowl that's like, this is a very moral bowl as opposed to this wicked bowl over here. And that shows us the primary meaning of holiness and sanctification. These things can be set apart. These things can be devoted to God for a special purpose or use. So they're set apart, they're devoted, this is what they are, so that they can become holy in how they are used in what they do. And that is the same sequence that happens for us. It is our identity that shapes our behavior. Let me show you how this works out in other places when it comes to the concept of holiness. We have these verses up on the slides. Look at Ephesians 5.3. It says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. So this is talking about sexual change and growth, and transformation, and holiness, and economic change and growth, that we wouldn't be greedy people. Notice the logic. You are holy. Some of the translations you'll see say saints. So live holy, sexually, and economically. Next slide. Colossians 3.12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, 
compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. A lot of change being talked about there. Be compassionate. Be more compassionate. Be more humble. Be more meek. Be more forgiving. Why? Because of who you are. You are holy and loved. So live holy. One more, Romans 12. We already read this in our liturgy. A very important passage in the book of Romans. It's the transition from the teaching of the gospel into how it affects our lives, similar to what is being prayed here. In John 17, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, there's the word again, and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There is the logic again. Be transformed. Don't be conformed to the world. Why? Because you are holy. Your life is set apart and acceptable to God. So live holy. Here is the point I'm making. It's the point that is here in Jesus' prayer for us. He says, sanctify them. What I want you to know is that that prayer is answered for every Christian. For every person who places their faith in Jesus, they are sanctified. They are holy. It is who we are. We are sanctified. And so we live sanctified. It's another way we see this in the New Testament. When you become a Christian, the New Testament has a word for that. It's the word saint. Again, same word group as the word holy and sanctified and saint. All the same. You could translate it holy one. This is who God says you are. You are a saint. You are a holy one. And so when the, letter, the letters of the New Testament are written and addressed to people in all these different churches, we never read a letter of the New Testament that says, to the sinners at Corinth, to the sinners in Orange County, here is your letter. To the sinners of Irvine. And you go, well, maybe that's true. We are, we are sinful. We're broken people. But it never says that. It always says to the saints. To the saints. To the saints. To the holy ones. To the holy people. And then it goes on to describe all kinds of ways that they need to change. That their behavior needs to line up with what God says is right, which is God's design for their lives. But somehow, even though their lives still have a lot of change that need to happen, they're holy ones and saints. So every now and then, I have to have you do something a little uncomfortable and a little bit cheesy to make a point. This is one of those times. So what I want you to do right now is just look at somebody who's next to you and say, hello, Saint Steve. Fill in their name. Go ahead, do it. Hello, Saint. Nice to meet you, Saint. Skin. Friends, this is the prayer of Jesus Christ. 
that we'd be in shock and awe and wonder at the fact that that is true of us if our faith is in Jesus. You are holy. You are set apart. Your life is special. You. You have special value. You have special worth and purpose to the God of the universe. That is what it means to be holy. Who's feeling holy today? Go ahead, raise your hand. Who's feeling holy? You woke up this morning and you said, I just feel, I'm feeling it. I feel holy, set apart. I'm pretty doggone holy right now, you know? I'm not just Eric today. I am Saint Eric today. There was a Saint, you know, Saint Augustine, Saint Augustine. I can be a Saint Eric. That's, that's, yeah, I feel that. I'm feeling it. Why not? I'm special. I would guess. Nobody raised their hand. Maybe you're too shy, but I would guess almost all of us, probably all of us said no. I don't feel like my life is very holy, set apart, special, and devoted to something so glorious as that. I don't feel like a saint. I just go to school and I take a chemistry test. Is that saintly? I just go through the day and I'm praying my kids would sleep through the night more. I'm just going to work and I'm getting things done. Life is full. Good things are there, but ordinary. And sometimes there's really hard things and I'm barely making it through and there's darkness and doubt. I'm not holy. I don't act like a saint. I get angry with people. I'm trying not to be annoyed with them. I'm trying not to be so shaped in my thinking and desiring and actions by the world, but I know I am. I often am. Saint, Eric, who am I kidding with that? More like sinner Eric. Which one am I? Well, Jesus' prayer is telling us it's not based on what we do. It's not based on what we feel. That we are holy because of what he prays in verse 19. This is the third point. How do we become who we are? In verse 19, he prays, I sanctify myself for them so they may also be sanctified by the truth. Jesus is not asking God here that we would sin less. Please make them sin less. No, he's not saying make them good and moral people. No, we don't need Jesus for that. That can happen and all kinds of people are good and moral. Sanctification is much, much much more than that. He is praying that our entire lives, our entire selves would be devoted to God. Our home life, our school life, our play life, our fun life, our TV life, our internet life, our marriage life, our friendship life, our neighborhood life, our church life, all of life would be devoted to God for his purposes that we would say, it's yours, it's fully yours, it's wholly yours for your good and pleasing and perfect will. How does that happen? It's answered right here in verse 19. He says, this is how it happens. There's the so that in there. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Some translations say truly and in fact sanctified. By Jesus sanctifying himself, like we said, not making himself more pure and holy, he is the pure and holy one and sinless. He already is. But by him setting himself apart for us. By Jesus devoting himself to us. That changes who we are. 
which in turn changes everything about us. That's what Jesus is praying here. I set my life apart. I'm devoting myself to save you. I am devoting and setting myself apart so that you would be made into the person you are meant to be. I gave my entire life to get to this point, to pray this prayer, to move to the cross so that I would take your sin, so that I would take your brokenness, so that I would take the consequence of you trying to live as if you belong to yourself, I will take that. I am devoting everything about myself to take that from you so you can take from me what is mine, my holiness, my set-apartness, the fact that my entire self is devoted to God and His glory. That's you now. You are a saint, and that is why I've come. That's why I've said everything I've said. That's why I've done everything I've done. Jesus says, here it is. I'm devoting everything to make them holy. Jesus did not die for us because we were holy. He died for us to make us holy. And now he says, you belong to me. Your life is set apart for me. You are holy, your life, all of your life. Each part of it is valuable and special and devoted to God and his purposes. Friends, every other system in the world says, if you want to belong, if you want to have your identity, you better earn that identity. You better live up to that identity. And if you don't, you're out. You don't belong anymore. You don't get to claim that identity. But Christianity, among all the systems in the world, says, you can have the identity you were made for. A person wholly devoted to God. My favorite story, part of a story that illustrates this, is from the story Les Miserables. I have not seen the musical live or read the book. I read probably just a slice of the book, 10%. But in the book, Les Miserables, and in the story, in the movie, uh, the character, uh, one of the main, the main characters, Jean Valjean. And he is a convict who spent many years in prison. He was desperate, he stole some bread, and he ended up in prison. And it changed him for the worse, as prison would do. And he feels worthless and terrible and horrible. And he's a vagrant, and he escapes from prison. He escapes from prison, he ends up at the house of an old bishop. And the bishop takes him in, and the bishop feeds him. But in the middle of the night, this criminal, he gets up. He looks through the bishop's house. He finds some valuable silver candlesticks. He says, I'm taking these and I'm leaving. He gets caught. He gets brought back to the bishop. And at least in the movie and in the movie version of the musical I've seen, he's distraught. He feels even more worthless. This is who I am, a criminal, a thief, worthless, not valuable. And the bishop turns to him, and this is what changes the whole course of his life and the entire story, and says, this man, he says to those who brought him in first, he says, this man 
He's not guilty. I gave him those candlesticks. And he's set off free from the authorities. Before he goes, he turns to him and says, listen, Jean Valjean, with this silver, I have bought your life for God. And from that moment, Jean Valjean's life completely transforms. He is a great man. He is a good man who serves others. And the story goes on to show that that is the authentic change and transformation that has happened in his life. And this was the moment. Why? What changed him so much? It's great to get off the hook to be forgiven of your crime, right? He's forgiven. Okay, he doesn't have to go back to prison. Great. But that's not what changed him. What changed him is when the bishop said to him, your life is valuable. Your life is worth these two silver candlesticks. And he went from, from thinking and believing, I am worthless. I am not set apart. I am not holy. I am worthless, miserable. I'm a terrible person. How much more powerful is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus says, with my entire self, with my life, this is how much you are worth. This is how valuable your life is to me. And Jesus says, with my life, I have bought your life for God. Jesus says, it was worth it. It was worth it that I gave everything in order that you might receive into the depths of your soul the reality that you are holy, set apart, and loved. When that truth gets in us, then we change. Final thought. There's a great quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's preaching on these passages. He's a great preacher um, from, from England. He wrote a book on this chapter. And what he says, we have a saying in our culture. I don't know who came up with this saying. There are different versions of the saying depending on where you live in, uh, in the country. Some people say you can't take... No. Some people say this. You can take a boy out of the country, Right? but you can't take country out of the boy. Or there's the Snoop Dogg version that says, you can take your boy out the hood, but you can't take the hood out the homie. However you want to say it. But here's the, here's the, here's the gospel version. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. The gospel of Jesus Christ does not so much take the Christian out of the world as take the world out of the Christian. Whatever the world is like around and about them, if the world is not in them, the world outside them will not be able to affect them. That is the glory of the gospel. It makes a man free in the midst of hell. When this truth is in us, we are free to be who God says we are, who we truly are, to be devoted entirely to him. Let's pray that more and more, that's what our lives would be. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this amazing prayer of your son, Jesus. We thank you that when you heard this prayer, you answered it. That you answered it and said yes. And I pray that we would hear that yes over our lives right now. 
that we would remember that our lives belong to you, that we would remember who we are, and that more and more and more we would become who we are, that areas and parts of our lives that we have not given over to you, that we have not devoted to you, that we are holding back, that belong to the world, I pray that those parts of our lives would be given over, would be surrendered, and that we would trust that your will is holy and perfect and pleasing in those things. Give us the grace to do that, we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.